You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 18th of January 2022 on Monocle 24. Scotland and the UK on a collision course over trans rights. What are the limits of harmonious devolution? The Republican Party stands by one of its newest congressmen, despite increasing doubt over who he even is, and is cake, in fact, bad. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Murray LeConte and Lou Lukens will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll have the latest dispatch from our team at the World Economic Forum Wingding in Davos. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by the political journalist and author Marie LeConte and by Lou Lukens, senior partner with Signum Global Advisors and former U.S. diplomat. Hello to you both. Hi. Hello. Um, Marie, later in the show, we will be addressing the theme of arguably eccentric elected representatives. And if I wondered if by any outstanding fluke you had some sort of book on the subject, you would be able to recommend to our listeners. It is incredible that you're bringing that up, Andrew, (laughs) because I did, in fact, once write a book called Honourable Misfits, uh, which is about uh, the British Parliament's sort of oddest and most eccentric and crooked MPs in history. So... If the listeners, you know, like what they hear in a few minutes' time, then they can buy the book to get some more. Available in all good stores? Indeed, even the bad ones. <laughs> um, Lou, before we get on to that, I, I was wondering, by way of, you know, equal time here, do, do you have, prior to the recent uh, contender for the title, a particular favourite eccentric US politician from history? I mean, there's uh, been, there's been you one know, there, or two. There, there have been so many. I, that, honestly, I can't think of one off the top of my head. There, the, the US... Congress especially, the mm. Senate a little bit less so, but the Congress has a long and rich history of of eccentric misfits. <laughs> to put it charitably, we will be coming back to that, but we will start with Russia, whose Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov appears to have reached the whatever-why-not stage of negotiating an intractable crisis. While moaning at reporters in Moscow earlier today, Lavrov accused the United States of assembling a European coalition to, as he put it, solve the Russian question in the same manner that Nazi Germany had attempted to eradicate Europe's Jews. I'm joined with more on this by Dr Jenny Mathers, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the University of Aberystwyth. Um, Jenny, first of all, is there, to extend Sergei Lavrov more benefit of the doubt than I suspect he's due, any chance at all that this went askew in the translation somewhere? No, I don't think so. This has become really standard rhetoric coming from senior officials and not so senior officials in Russia lately uh, to uh, basically to accuse anyone who is supporting Ukraine and opposing Russia's war in Ukraine uh, as being modern day Nazis. I mean, is Lavrov just actually past caring or is there a particular constituency that he does hope this will land with? I think he's got a constituency of one, which is uh, which is Putin. I mean, this is the the, the thing that the, the people who are dancing around him, the senior officials, the elites, the inner circle, the outer circle, um, you know, they all seem to be in competition with each other uh, to say ever more extreme and bizarre things. 
sort of giving different uh, developments on on the same essential theme that that Russia's enemies are, you know, modern day Nazis and Russia is refighting the Second World War. So it, it seems their audience is primarily in the Kremlin. They are trying to demonstrate their loyalty, trying to demonstrate um, how much, uh, you know, they can uh, elaborate on the, the fundamental theme and, and demonstrate that they are on message. I mean, I appreciate that this ship may well have sailed, but that being the case, and it does seem like a plausible hypothesis, does it demonstrate that as far as Russia is concerned, this is now uh, an absolutely zero-sum game, that Russia will win this at all costs if it can? I think it has been this this way for a while. I think um, Putin has set up uh, the war in Ukraine as being really a, a maximalist war in the sense that he now seems to define Russian security as being dependent upon Russia dominating its neighbours, um, not just having friendly relations or having neutral parties nearby, but really dominating in uh, its nearest neighbours uh, in a way that's that's very open-ended. So once you've dominated the nearest neighbours, then the next ones after that, you know, become suspect and, and so on. So he's really set things up and, and has created this narrative around um, an existential crisis for Russia, that uh, losing in Ukraine would be, you know, to, to lose Russia itself. And uh, and the hyperbole goes on in terms of, you know, Russia would become dismembered and it would lose its identity and, and so on and so forth. So he really is, you know, um, raising the temperature quite as, as high as he possibly can. I, I mean, we've seen a recurring theme <clears throat> these last 11 months or so of Russia's efforts of various sorts having more or less the opposite uh result from what they hoped for, you know, most notably uh, NATO actually ending up larger uh, for Russia's efforts. Um, response to Lavrov's invocation of the final solution in Israel has been predictably and indeed quite rightly furious. Um, Israel has up until now been actually quite equivocal about Russia's attack on Ukraine. Might Lavrov have ended up pushing Israel off the fence? Well, it'll be interesting to see whether Putin does what he did the last time that Lavrov started saying uh, outrageous things about Israel, which was uh, Putin stepped in and apologized and tried to smooth things over. Uh, so, you know, it seems as though perhaps there is even a place uh, beyond which uh, Putin's cronies uh, should not go. Uh, and, and perhaps he recognizes that. I think, you know, Russia values a good relationship with Israel. And so I suspect we may see Putin reining things back in again and trying to smooth over relationships again. Well, on the subject of President Putin, just finally, there was some foreshadowing that he was due to make some spectacular announcement today. He did speak, but it wasn't quite, was it? No, I mean, there's all kinds of speculation about what might happen next in terms of a new round of mobilization uh, of, of Russian troops uh, and, you know, what, what might be announced and so on. So, yes, at the moment, you know, the expectations are not being fulfilled. Uh, so we really have to wait and see. <clears throat> but certainly, um, if Russia is going to try and, and mount a major offensive in Ukraine in the spring, which is what everyone has expected, uh, they probably will try and do another round of mobilization, although they may very well uh, fold it into the annual, biannual rather, uh, conscription efforts, which already exist. 
Um, so yes, I think he's he's sort of keeping us guessing. He's um, um, keeping us on our toes and, and wondering what he might do next. Jenny Mathers at the University of Aberystwyth, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, let's bring our panel in now, uh, Mari and Lou, and we will contemplate the intersection between the questions of Scottish independence and the rights of trans people. Two fairly low-key issues about which few people really have any especially strongly felt opinions. This should be fine. Later in the show, we'll do Israel and Palestine and whether or not cyclists should keep off the footpath. The thing is that last month, Scotland's Parliament passed laws intended to make it easier for trans people to change their legally recognised sex. The UK's government, claiming to be concerned about an impact on equality laws across all of Great Britain, is planning for the first time since Scotland's Parliament was created in 1999 to stop a Scottish bill from gaining royal assent. Um, first of all, Murray, if we steer frankly sensibly away from the the issue at hand um let's look at the politics of this do you think nicola sturgeon has picked this fight deliberately I actually don't think so, because that's something, so I think reform of um, the way trans people can get their gender recognised by the state um, has been a topic in, I mean, in British politics in general for a long time, Theresa May had even talked about it, but Mm -hmm. I think in Scottish politics as well, I believe it was actually in most manifestos at the last elections um, for the Scottish party. So I think not necessarily, actually, that that was very much, and what I find interesting, actually, is that that debate, as you may imagine, was actually, you know, tempers ran high and there was a lot of media interest, etc. And I, I believe that the Scottish Parliament sat for two days as well debating all the amendments so it was very high profile but even then you know we didn't really get a peep I think from Westminster Mm. or any sign that that was going to happen and it's only after the bill passed that I think we started hearing some kind of grumblings and then more or less out of nowhere I think you know it's kind of Within 24 hours, it went from rumours that Alistair Jack, the Scotland Secretary, might do this to, oh, oh, OK, he's doing it. So I'm really not sure. I mean, I, I rarely am a great sort of defender of Nicola Sturgeon. But on, on, on this occasion, I do think she was just doing what she wanted to do and was not just trying to upset the English. Well, just to follow that up, then, should I have asked that question the other way around? Do we get the sense that Westminster rather than necessarily acting out of pure-hearted concern for British equality laws, is picking this fight deliberately. Hmm, yes and no, because I'm not convinced that's a good fight you'd want to pick at the moment, because actually Nicola Sturgeon has arguably been running out of steam a fair bit, and I think Rishi Sunak has been trying to kind of repair the relationship um, between Westminster and Holyrood to an extent. Obviously, he had a very friendly-looking meeting with Nicola Sturgeon, etc. So so I, I feel like that's not the route he was seemingly going down, but obviously we have we do have a government that I think feels very strongly about the issue as a sort of policy matter. So I think that was probably more the angle rather than let's pick a fight with the bats. <laughs> uh, Lou, we did want to broaden this out into a discussion about that uh, always imprecise and always vexed balance between different tiers of government, state and national, uh, state and local, etc. The United States, I realise, is not a union necessarily in the way that the United Kingdom is. These things all get formed differently and messily. But nonetheless, yours is a country which has maintained a system like this for quite some time and only really had one civil war over it so so well done there um what has the united states learned about balancing federal versus local power well i'm not sure we've learned a lot (laughs) and and some of the most difficult issues in american politics and american life sort of come down to this question of can the federal government make regulations or does it belong to the states and of course most recently in the in the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus mm-hmm. Wade and a woman's right to an abortion. And that was a nationally recognized right. 
according to the Supreme Court decision in the early 1970s, and that has now been overturned, which means that every state can make its own law. So it's a, a patchwork of states now. But it's not just abortion rights. It's gun control. It's, it's local public education. Um, all very hot-button issues in American politics and society right now. And, and there's a real mix of what you can expect to find across the country. But is there an argument then... Especially acknowledging that mix across the country, and I think it is often forgotten that because the United States is one country, there is at least, I think, as much cultural and political diversity within it as there is within continental Europe, for example. But but that that tension you discuss or describe between national and state governments, isn't that the system working like it's supposed to? Isn't there always basically supposed to be an argument? Well, I mean, look, that depends on your political point of view, right? And the conservatives would argue that, yes, that's the way the system is supposed to work and local governments should make decisions for local people. Um, I think there are others in America and probably more on the progressive side who would argue that there are certain fundamental rights that should be recognized for all Americans, regardless of whether they live in Idaho or Massachusetts. And, uh, and they would argue that some of these sort of privacy rights or whether a woman's right to choose or rights around sexuality should be extended to all Americans, um, regardless of where they live. And so this is the tension in the American system that is um, was actually fairly quiet for a while, but I think the politics of late and Republicans having seized on some of these issues to fire up their base have raised these issues to the forefront again. I mean, in Australia, though, which is, I suspect, much more culturally and politically monolithic, we have had uh, one or two prime ministers who suggested after leaving office, or actually, I think at least once even during it, that they kind of wished the states had all been abolished at Federation, uh, and, oh. that, and that Australia, in fact, had no state governments. But, but Murray, is, is France any better at this? Um, I suppose we are, but mostly because... So I would say that what's interesting about France is, you know, is La République, the Republic. Mm. I think that, you know, as a kind of narrative, like the, a narrative very much, you know, was created in Paris, was created as a kind of an image, etc. I think politically that is very useful um, in order to basically keep sort of everyone relatively quiet and also <laughs> obviously having the president who has like so much executive power, etc. That helps. But that being, you know, all of that being said, I'm about to contradict myself here. Um, there is also a lot of devolution in France. Um, so if you look at, you know, the mayors of different cities, etc. do have a lot of power. But at the same time, again, I mean, I'm, I would say I'm actually not an expert on kind of local French politics. But as far as I can tell, there is not that much tension there and I, I wonder if it's not because we managed to strike the right balance actually between again having the you know the republic and the president of the nation etc but also at the same time quite quietly on the boring stuff giving quite a lot of power away to the kind of local politicians and it does seem to be working reasonably well but the, she says with <laughs> some confidence. But there's there's not the same uh, ongoing philosophical row about where the default uh, the default home of power is, whether it's with the states or with the nation? Not really. Well, I think it's probably like everywhere else, you know, I, I think that the far right does enjoy trying to play on that a bit, mm. of saying, oh God, you know, those people in Paris who don't understand you, blah, 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 blah. But I think that, you know, in any system, you will always get that anyway. And I think that's entirely cynical on their part as well. Because what was it? I remember like the mayor of some, the National Front mayor of some town. Was it? I think he tried to ban kebabs. <laughs> um, it, yeah. So again, so, you know, what once they do get elected, they don't exactly thrive. <laughs> but it is also uh, the issue here, and it's not necessarily a problem, Lou, and it's 
it's definitely not confined to any particular country that there's there's something there's something fundamental baked into this which is that no government or bureaucracy that i can think of has ever said you know what we have enough power this will do let's let's leave it yeah and yeah exactly and and you know in the united states um governors and and state governments are are quite powerful in their own right and there are many ambitious people in those states who aspire to higher office Mm. to federal office and one way for them to make their name is to seize on some of these social political issues um and and to be contrarian about them so that they get their names and their you know their name in the headlines so um there there's always you know there are many mo- political motives behind um, some of the disputes that happen between state and federal government. Uh, we will be coming back to the United States very shortly uh, in an item which I, for one, am extremely excited about. But, but before we do that, uh, Murray, to go back to where we came, on, came in on this one, and at the risk uh, of, you know, damning your next few weeks to dealing with angry emails from our many Scottish and Welsh listeners. Is is there an argument that devolution in the UK's specific context was not perhaps an especially bright idea? Tony Blair said a couple of years ago that we were, he didn't recant from devolution, which was one of his big ideas, but he did say we were wrong in believing that devolution would end the argument of independence in Scotland. Um, well, yes. I mean, when you started the question, I was going to say it did fail on its own terms because the idea was to actually nip mm. independence in the bud. Um, but then obviously Tony Blair himself said that. I did not realise that he'd admitted it, actually, which is quite interesting. So in that respect, sure. But then, you know, equally, I think the status quo was quite untenable at the time and they did have to do something at the time. Um, but but I'm not I'm not really sure where you go from here because I don't really see a conservative government you know sort of leaning into even more devolution certainly not leaning into having a second referendum or a first referendum for Wales so I I, I think it's you know in, like many things in British politics at the moment one of those issues that will not get resolved in a meaningful way anytime soon and we'll just kind of troll along annoying everyone along the way. <laughs> Well, to the United States then, where identifying the single weirdest member of the House of Representatives has become even more challenging following the swearing-in of the latest intake, among which was George Santos, a Republican sent to Washington by the discerning voters of New York's 3rd District, which suggests that they never quite got all of the lead out of the pipes on Long Island. While campaigning, Santos claimed, among much else, to be Jewish, a Wall Street financier, a property tycoon, a college volleyball star, and the son of a 9-11 survivor. None of this is true. He may not even be called George Santos. It now emerges that Santos, if that is his real name, etc., appears to have built $3,000 from a fundraising account established to raise money for surgery for a disabled veteran's dog. Over the weekend, it's not funny, Mari, it's really not. Okay, it's a bit funny. But over the weekend, Santos's Republican Party chapter in Nassau County, New York, called for his resignation. Here is bewildered local chairman Joseph Cairo. He has no place in the Nassau County Republican Committee, nor should he serve in public service, nor as an elected official. He's not welcome here at Republican headquarters for meetings or at any of our events. As I said, he's disgraced the House of Representatives, and we do not consider him one of our Congress people. Today, on behalf of the Nassau County Republican Committee, I am calling for his immediate resignation. 
Uh, Mari, to you first of all, as we mentioned at the top of the show, somebody who has written an entire book about the eccentrics, chances, frauds, lunatics, etc., who have won elected office in this country. Um, where do you rate George Santos? I mean, there, there is, there's kind of a go big or go home bar that he has <laughs> cleared here, isn't there? Yeah, I know absolutely. I, th- I think he would, he would actually, you know, be included in the book had you know had all of this happened fifty years ago, and also in Britain, which I realise are big <laughs> ifs. Um, but no, it's just a level of lying that I find remarkable, and especially, and I'm very sorry for the audible giggling earlier, <laughs> but it's just genuinely like you know, and, and I'm not even saying that you know anyone who's got even a half an understanding of politics or just people if there's a thing people i think don't like is what people like rather it's veterans Mm -hmm. like disabled veterans and dogs yep Um, so honestly if you asked me to make up the worst possible (laughs) sounding story that would have i think that would have been it so yeah again apologies for the slight sniggering (laughs) Um, uh no i i I will confess to upon first reading that story today not mere sniggering but but outright (laughs) outright guffaws which is not to say just so we're absolutely clear on this that i personally nor monocle 24 as an organization approves stealing money from the dogs of disabled veterans um lou he has nevertheless been named by the republican party to two house committees uh, on science and small business um are they doing this just to wind up their opponents or is this due recognition of santos's achievements in walking on mars and founding amazon <laughs> this is an extraordinary story this this man is a u.s congressperson we don't even know if george santos is his name we don't even <laughs> we don't really know if he's an american citizen Right, he appears to have come from Brazil at some point and married an American he, he is, he, woman. He, he is he is wanted for fraud in Brazil he as well. Married an American woman, possibly for the green card, you know, mm. as a scam while he was living with a man. So the whole thing is crazy. Uh, but you're right. He is he is he is in the House of Representatives. The the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has not called for him to resign, um, and he has been appointed to two committees and. Um, this is not because uh, I think Kevin McCarthy has any great faith in him as a legislature, but Kevin McCarthy has a very, very small majority in the House, and he cannot afford to lose any of his representatives on the Republican side. And so he's decided just to shut up and, and, and keep him in the caucus. Just to follow that up, though, Lou, is Kevin McCarthy, all jokes aside, also worried about what would happen uh, if he establishes a precedent of kicking out lunatics, fabulists or idiots? Well, that's a good point, because then he would have to tr- try to draw the line somewhere, right? <laughs> if you kick out George Santos, do you let Lauren Boebert stay in, Marjorie Taylor Greene? There are lots of other sort of wacky characters um, on, the, on the right-wing fringes of, of the Republican conference in the House. I, w- I would say George Santos is probably the most out there, given the level of lying and the, and the volume of lies. Um, but there are others, and you're right, it would set a precedent where they might have to actually be honest and well-behaved. Uh, Murray, it, it is always, I think, discombobulating whether it happens in someone's private life or in public life. And I think it, this will have happened to most people at some level, at some stage. You just run up against that person who just lies about literally everything, of small things, big things, things that there's no point at all in lying about. Um, and if you are that person, though, it's kind of a superpower. You, the total shamelessness. You just don't care. 
Mm. It, well, yes, but then I think so. The people who do that, there's also a bit of like, actually, you know, are, are you really a, a happy person? Are you? Because I think that there's definitely a genre of liar who's very good at lying, but it's kind of purposeful lying. Mm. And then, yeah, okay, well, that's quite sociopathic, but clearly this is working out quite well for you. But I think, again, as you said, the people who just sort of lie about everything. So I remember there was a minor sort of scandal on British media Twitter a few years ago because some slightly, some journalist basically was revealed. So I think had tweeted, but like numerous times. So he would tweet about, you know, once every two years saying, oh, wow, I just went to Wasabi for the first time in my life and it was really nice. I'd never had sushi before. <laughs> but like, he did that with so many different kinds of food and activities, which was baffling. And again, and I'm like, that's not, that does not strike me as someone who's doing tremendously. Um, no, um, but the, the, the thing with Santos is that I wonder, Lou, is the United States perhaps uniquely vulnerable to this kind of chance or this kind of character? It, it, it just always strikes me that there are there are fewer barriers to hurdle to get anywhere in American politics than there are in a lot of other places, which in many ways is commendable and democratic, etc. But in no other country that I can think of, do you let somebody start out by being president? Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> and, and and that didn't go optimally, speaking I think of, it's fair of, to speaking say. Speaking of liars. Well, exactly. <laughs> uh, but look, the, the incredible thing about the George Santos story is that nobody seemed, now is it seeming that maybe some people knew about it and knew that some of his claims were lies. But basically, um, the Democratic Party, which was, you know, running a candidate against them, apparently didn't do the kind of opposition research they should have done. I mean, they should have been able to find out during the campaign that this guy had lied about everything on his resume. Would it it have mattered, genuinely? I I think it might have mattered. I mean, he won. Mm. He flipped a seat. So the previous holder of his seat was a Democrat. It was a Democratic district. It was sort of borderline. But, um, you know, if if the voters had known that he didn't go to university, that he wasn't a successful business person, that he wasn't a star (laughs) volleyball player. um, That that he wasn't possibly even George Santos. That he possibly wasn't George Santos or even an American citizen, I think that might have had an impact on their votes. Um, Just finally, Mari, the the only competition... Actually, I I can think of a few competitors in, in British politics for... Actually, no one's in his league, but I, I was thinking of Paul Nuttall, the, the hapless former mm. leader of the UK Independence Party, who again did that thing of telling things that any journalist he was telling it to could check in five minutes and discover was not true, and yet he kept doing it. He did, but then again, you know, UKIP is a is a parliamentary party that's never managed to, I think, win a seat in the House of Commons that ever. That is true. And, it, you know, and at the time as well, so there was post-Nigel Farage as well, so they were not exactly polling very high. And, and I don't know, but I think so Santos, the weird thing as well is that he does seem to be quite unrepentant, because wasn't it, um, and I'm sorry again, I think I sniggered slightly earlier, because I remembered <laughs> when so someone called him out for saying he was Jewish despite not being Jewish, and then his thing was like, oh... Um, sorry, no, I think I was, I was really clear. So I thought I may, maybe had some Jewish heritage. I was saying Jew-ish, um, which I, I genuinely had to take a break from work to digest that. I, um, I, I really couldn't understand how that hadn't been a punchline in Curb Your Enthusiasm at some point. <laughs> Um, we, we will follow uh, Mr. Santos's career as long as it lasts with considerable interest. But before we plough on with the next story, a declaration of interest does seem in order. This here broadcaster, i.e. me, returned earlier this week from a sojourn in his native Australia and upon return to the office presented his colleagues with a bag of Violet Crumble, the Australian chocolate and honeycomb bar, which is what Crunchy wishes it was, and another of Cherry Ripe, the splendid Australian chocolate and cherry treat. In so doing, it appears I may have inflamed the dudgeon of the UK's food 
Food Standards Agency Chair Professor Susan Jebb, who has stated that bringing confectionery or cakes to the office is a health risk akin to passive smoking. Mari, it's not really, is it? Uh, it's not, but I think, again, and, and my, I, I'm very much pointing out to my self-interest here, which is that I don't really like sweet food, so I have decided to actually agree with her on this, <laughs> purely because I think that people should bring charcuterie instead to the office. Like, just bring wherever you went, just bring some fancy ham from there, bring back some ham. Um, I don't, why cake? Why you always cake? That's a ma- that's a magnificently French response. <laughs> when, when the person brings the charcuterie to the office, should they also be playing a small accordion? They can if they want to. You know what? I'm not like fine, fine. I'm not pushing it. Uh, Lou, where where are you on cake or and or other confectionery being brought to the office? Yeah, look, this is an issue that I think in the United States we would want to decide at the state level. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> look, I mean, if if there was look. You, there is no such thing as passive eating, right? There is passive smoking, and if you smoked a cigarette right now, regardless of what I did or wanted to do, it would have mm-hmm. some health effect on me. If you were eating chocolates right now and I didn't want to eat any, that would have no impact on my health at all. So I think it's a completely you know, different issue. But then that being said, and this is this is very much not me being a medical professional here or a psychological um, expert, but I, I, there is such a thing, though, so I, I call it the steak rule normally. If you go for lunch or dinner with someone or some people in a restaurant, if someone orders the steak and you're not a vegetarian, you have to order the steak as well because you know that otherwise whatever else you, that you order, when the steak arrives, you'll go, oh, God, I actually really wanted the steak. <laughs> so so I, I wonder if there's not actually a slight thing of saying, actually, you know, even people who are trying to be good and eat healthily, if they see everyone around them eat cake, I'll go fine, you know, go on. Um, as an observer, Mari, of British politics, 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 politics. I mean, in fairness, as recently as about 48 hours ago, I was on a very long flight, and I think that's the first word I've mispronounced this entire show. Cut me some slack here. I'm doing all right. Um, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, his spokesman, how far back precisely did you roll your eyes when he said personal choice should be baked into our approach? Oh, I hated that. But what I hated <laughs> even more, actually, was at the press conference of the lobby when uh, apparently it was said that the Prime Minister's favourite cakes are velvet cake and carrot cake, mm-hmm. which, again, the most boring choices. Apparently, the entire like, the lobby journalist groaned as one uh, when the when the spokesperson said that. So, no, I, I, I've not I've not enjoyed it. Really. I don't think they've covered themselves in glory with that one. See, really. I, I, I don't mind a carrot or a red velvet cake. Wouldn't necessarily they're not your say... your favourite. Wouldn't necessarily say they're my favourites, Lou. I had a birthday over the holiday and we had a birthday carrot cake. So I take great offense at Marie's... But is it your favorite cake in the entire world? It just, I feel like, aim higher. I like it. I gotta say, I like it. Is is there, though, a counterpoint, Mari, that that nudges or interventions from government can actually be good where health is concerned? Yes, well, especially, so I think I'm quite... You know, I would say like on, on the more libertarian end when it comes to passing laws on that stuff. But mm. I think just occasionally saying, hey, maybe don't bring very sweet, unhealthy food to the office every single day is fine because people can ignore it. I think crucially, if people can just ignore it, then, you know, why not give it a try? It's free. And Lou, just finally, and this to bring it back to where we started with this, which was confectionery being brought here into the Monocle office. It quite often occurs that when people go away on assignment, they bring back something from where they went. And just before Chris it was it was literally the talk of the newsroom for about a week, and I did want to ask you about this specifically in regarding your former role as US ambassador to Senegal. Uh, somebody returned with a bag of those extremely spicy ginger sweets from Senegal, uh, gingembre, I think it's mm-hmm. probably pronounced. 
Was that anywhere yeah, near yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. That, that was close. Okay. Uh, they divided opinion uh, quite considerably. I came down in favour of them. I really liked them. Did, did you ever try them? I did. I like them. But you're right. It's People either love them or hate them. It's not. There's no sort of middle ground on those. I like the idea that the Senegalese Marmite. <laughs> but but this, but this is is this not finally an argument for bringing this stuff to the office? Is that it gives people something to talk about? You it's learn a, things. It's a, it's a cultural about, experience. About I'm, I'm surprised cultures. you didn't bring back Tim Tams. Uh, so, well, that, this this is a, this is a whole other discussion. I'm not I'm not against the Tim Tam, but in the Australian biscuit hierarchy, the Tim Tam is no iced vovo. Those are fighting words. (laughs) (laughs) Lou Lukens and Marie LeConte, thank you both very much for joining us. Finally, on today's show, to our team at Davos and a regular visitor to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Peter Wolodarski, editor-in-chief of the Swedish national newspaper Dagens Nieta, has seen how the forum has changed over the years. Monocle's Markus Hippie met him to discuss the mood this year, what he wants to take home from an event like this, and Sweden and Finland's pending NATO applications. Peter began by explaining why this year's edition of WEF feels different. Well, it's interesting because the forum has not been active for a couple of years because of the pandemic. So this is the first big gathering since 2019. Obviously, we had Davos. It took place last year in May, but it was... It was not the same thing. And we have the war, which is, I think, affecting all conversations, all sessions, all themes, and the kind of optimism that Davos very much projected when I started to to go here and over the years has turned into pessimism and not a vision. I just came from a seminar about nuclear fusion, which is sort of a promising technology in 30 years time. (laughs) So um, you don't get that kind of feeling here that things are getting, that things are improving. There is a lot of worry instead of optimism. So, Peter, obviously, you run one of Sweden's leading newspapers. How do Swedes view Davos? What kind of news are they most interested in? When you're thinking about your audience, what do they want to hear from Davos? I think, I mean, Swedes in general don't have a strong relationship with Davos at all. It's just one of the conferences. But of course, they are, they feel proud when Swedes are on the stage and when Sweden is projected in a positive light. (laughs) But it's not that people on, a, on an everyday scale think about Davos. But one thing I've noticed, but it's not only about Sweden, this is something that's happened during the pandemic. There's, there are lots of conspiracy theories spreading around about Davos, some anti-Semitism linked to this, anti-vax. All those things are sort of going together. And, and I see it, especially on social media, in a way that I did not see a couple of years ago. It seems that Davos has attracted, in the past, it got, received a lot of criticism from the left. And that criticism was about inequality, about wealth, about redistribution. What we see now comes from a different political spectrum. It's from the hard right, I would say. And that's that's interesting. And, and I talked to people from the forum about it and asked about it. And they say that it started basically with the pandemic. The big themes this year are obviously about the war in in Ukraine, also about the economy and also about the future of European cooperation and cooperation more widely in the world. What do you think have been the most interesting comments made so far? What have people been saying? Uh, There was a big gathering in the Congress Hall with the Ukrainian First Lady. And I was a bit surprised that she did not receive a standing ovation. I would have expected that. She did not. I can't really explain why. I worry that there might be Ukraine fatigue. 
I don't have a proof of that, but it was noticeable and I think it was really problematic that she did not receive a warmer welcoming from the people here. So then, of course, the Russians are shut off from Davos. So for many years, you saw Russians all over the forum. They had the Russian house, there were sessions with Russians. They really liked to be here. And now they are not here anymore. It has, the forum has become more Europe-centered again. So for many years, they tried to build a more global forum and Europe's role in it was reduced. And now we see Europe coming back because of the war, I guess. Well, in connection to the war, we should talk about what's happening both in Finland and Sweden. NATO applications have been sent and both countries are now waiting for something to happen that Hungary and and Turkey would approve these applications. What is your analysis of the situation? Well, I think Turkey, I'm not sure that they will approve the application after the elections. This might drag on for a number of years. I'm quite pessimistic. I I just talked actually to a journalist from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia and Turkey had a very difficult relationship over the last years because of the slaughtering of Jamal Khashoggi. And um, basically he thought that that Turkey might keep this issue for a very long time because it's a bargaining chip. It's useful in other negotiations. But I I don't have... uh, (laughs) I can't predict exactly what they would do. I did an interview with the Finnish president last week on Thursday, Sauli Ninisto, and he said that after the Madrid meeting last year, when he saw that Erdogan, President Erdogan, was criticized by the opposition for being too friendly towards Sweden and, and Finland, he realized that this is going to be messy and hard, and he does not expect any movement on Turkish part before the election. What has all this done to Sweden's place in the world? Do you think Sweden has got, for example, closer to Finland? Are we now two countries keeping it together more tightly than ever before? And then more widely, what is what is the place of those Nordic countries in the world? Yeah, so for sure, Sweden and Finland are closer today than for many, many years. I mean, of course, there is a historic president here, but many of those emotions have been reactivated after the war broke out. And I think they will last. And it's also, I think it's clear that both NATO and Turkey view Sweden and Finland as, a, as one. They will not, although they are more critical, Turkey is more critical of Sweden than of Finland. I don't foresee Finland joining without Sweden. And that's actually also what the Finnish president said. Uh, he doesn't see that as, an, as a scenario, as an option for, for Finland. I think uh, the outside world... In general, it's a very positive view of, of the Scandinavian countries, not only of Sweden, but of, of Finland, Norway, and also Denmark, in many respects. Back to Davos. I'm wondering, what are your favorite things to do over here, being such an experienced visitor at WEF? <laughs> well, learn new things. I think that's the main thing I try to do here. I mean, it's always easier to attend seminars on topics that you are familiar with, but it's always fascinating when you explore themes that you less know less about. So I want to leave this <laughs> conference when I go here and with, with new perspectives that I use back home in, in our journalism. 
That was Peter Wolodarski speaking to Marcus Hippie, and that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Mari Leconte and Lou Lukens, also to Jenny Mathers at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Parmentuan. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.